to where we come from the old normal you know it's really challenging and obviously when you're representing someone in a tribunal you you have to be on top form all the time so risks range from everything like weak passwords on vpns right down to just being able to talk yourself into places you shouldn't be the podcast for it and cybersecurity recruiters hiring managers consultants and project professionals here's your host Alan Entwistle. Welcome to the latest episode of Granger's Got Skills. Today we're joined by best-selling author Robbie Kalman-Baxter. Robbie is also a mentor, a consultant, a speaker. So welcome to the show, Robbie. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So tell me a little bit about your background, how you got into the membership economy industry. (laughs) The booming membership economy industry. When I started, it wasn't that big. I got laid off about 20 years ago when I was on maternity leave with my middle child and I started consulting as a way to be more in control of my own career and my own income than to, to help pay my share of the mortgage. And I knew that if I wanted to be successful as an independent consultant, I really needed an area of subject matter expertise to be differentiated in some way so that I wasn't just arms and legs. So I was always thinking about that in the back of my mind. What could I be an expert at? What's big enough to be meaty and interesting, but also narrow enough that I could credibly become an expert? And you know, I was always thinking about that. And my fifth client was Netflix. Netflix at that time had just established a national footprint in the United States. They had just started doing television advertisements. They had just become able to make that promise of a three-day turnaround of movies delivered in the mail. So it's a pretty long time ago. And I just fell in love with their business model. And as I was falling in love with it, other people were too. And they were saying, hey, you know, we want to be like Netflix. We want to have subscription revenue. We want to have those kinds of valuations. We want to have that kind of loyalty from our customers. And I started digging into what does it mean to be like Netflix? And what does it mean for software as a service? companies? What does it mean for associations? What does it mean for more traditional businesses? And that was really the start of how I got into membership. And I really haven't looked back since. I wrote The Membership Economy five years ago to describe what I was seeing so that other people could see it too. And then, of course, this year I wrote The Forever Transaction to show people how to get into the weeds and actually build a model that works. Sure. So so what do you think Netflix got right from the get-go or did they make mistakes to begin with and then corrected those mistakes? I think that what they got right from the get-go was a focus on doing one thing really well on an ongoing basis. People like to have video content that they can watch on their own and they like to never run out and they did not like late fees or not being able to find something that they wanted to see. And Netflix said, we'll provide you with a broad selection of professionally created video content delivered in the most efficient way possible. So you don't have to, you know, throw a raincoat over your pajamas and go pick up a movie on a Friday night. And um, we'll do it with cost certainty. So no late fees, no surprise fees. And 
they haven't done anything else. It's been, you know, 20 years and they're still doing that, that same forever promise, which is worth signing up for and worth staying subscribed to for a long time. And I think that was the single best thing that they did is to really focus on that. And, you know, over time, they've had a few bumps and a few missteps. I think that the most memorable was when they were offering both three DVDs out at a time and they were offering the beginning of their streaming offering and they split the two and offered them separately. And at the same time as they did that, they raised their prices. And I think that was a bump in the road for a bunch of reasons. Having the two separated and an increased in price and not explaining why they were increasing the price, I think was a big misstep, but they seem to have recovered pretty well and continue on their way with with great transparency. If we go back a little bit, Netflix obviously wasn't the first subscription business. So how far back did we go to actually look at some of the early subscription businesses? Well, you know, memberships have been around for as long as people have. You know, there were trade guilds, uh, you know, in the 12th century, Charles Dickens sold his books on subscription. The Book of the Month Club just enjoyed their 100th anniversary. Uh, when I was growing up, there were, you know, the Columbia House and BMG music programs where you'd get 12 CDs for a penny. So it's not a new idea, but I think what's happened in the last, say, 10 or 15 years is that technology is extending the infrastructure that enables this kind of ongoing trusted relationship. And so it's much easier for any kind of organization to build this kind of business model and this kind of relationship with customers, even across time and space. You were saying earlier on five years ago, your book, The Membership Economy, came out and that was very much a groundbreaking book in this area. So talk to me a little bit about that book, how that book came about, what the initial response was, how that has changed people's attitudes. I'd worked with Netflix and then a lot of other companies came and wanted to work with me because they were trying to build recurring revenue models. And I was trying to teach them about this member mindset um, that enabled subscription revenue and justified subscription revenue. But when I would try to explain this to an executive or an entrepreneur, a lot of times they would say, I don't see how this applies to my business. And I was actually getting into these very long conversations where I had to explain what I was seeing. And it was very labor intensive to explain to each company or each executive why membership was so powerful, why subscription revenue was so great, how they could do it in their own organization, why it was a reasonable option for them. And so I said, okay, I'm going to write this all down and it'll be a way to explain to the rest of the world what I'm seeing. And at the time, I didn't expect that it would be such a big hit, but I thought it would really help me with my existing relationships to explain my point of view in a succinct and thorough manner. But it kind of came right in just as people were really starting to get interested in this. And so it kind of took off. You know, the timing was very good. After Netflix, what are some of the other recent success stories as far as subscription businesses go? Oh, there's so many, Alan. When I first started working with Netflix, you know, I was also working with SurveyMonkey and I was working with different parts of the company Intuit around, you know, payroll and, you know, a lot of digital offerings, digital content and software products and software as a service on the B2B side. But more recently, we're seeing, you know, news media companies reinvent themselves and rethink their subscriptions. We're seeing um, professional services firms move toward, you know, kind of beyond traditional retainer and into a true membership where you pay a subscription fee to have access 
access to content and community and ongoing services. And we're even starting to see it now in things you wouldn't expect, heavy equipment and industrial businesses. You could subscribe to a crane or a thresher instead of having the burden of ownership. So there's really almost no limit on what can benefit from looking at it through the lens of a forever transaction and rethinking the business model for subscription revenue. Yeah, so membership knows no bounds really then, does Not it? Really. Just, um, it can apply to everything. So just touching there on professional services then, so can we just dig a little bit deeper into how those sort of businesses are playing with the membership model? Yeah, absolutely. So one example is the big consulting firm Bain & Company has a group called the Bain Net Promoter System Loyalty Forum. So probably most of our listeners are familiar with NPS scores, which is, you know, a way of saying, would you refer this company? Would you recommend this business? It's a way of tracking customer satisfaction and loyalty. A Bain partner came up with that concept and wrote the book, Fred Reichold. So they built a community of leaders in customer service, retail, customer experience, where these executives meet on a regular cadence, share their experiences and their best practices, and also have access to content that's being created by the Bain partnership. So it's a way for Bain to build deeper relationships, both with existing clients between large engagements, but also a way, kind of a front door for prospective clients to get to know Bain and to hear from existing Bain clients what they like about working with Bain and the benefits they're getting. So that's an example of a subscription as almost a marketing tool for a professional services firm. A a different model is I've seen some law firms and some consulting firms move to a subscription only model where you join and you have access to certain services and content on a fixed price. And that's the only way to interact. Are there any sort of areas of business that you think the membership model couldn't work or could it be applied across a number of sectors? Have you come across any areas where actually, no, we couldn't use a membership model here? There's a couple of areas where it doesn't work. So two sides of that coin. One of them is what business models don't lend themselves to subscription. And I would say if you don't care about sales and marketing for your business to work, then you don't really have a lot of urgency around building long-term relationships with your customers. So for example, if you have a patent, if you have the medicine that I need to survive, it doesn't really matter what kind of relationship you build with me. I'm going to seek you out and find you because you keep me alive. If you're the last fuel source for you know the next 100 kilometers, I'm going to buy from you even if your bathroom is dirty, even if you don't treat me well, because I'm never going to see you again, right? And I have no choice. But in any business where your customer has choice, you want that customer to stay with you once you've won them in the first place. You don't want to have to go out and catch their attention again. The other place that I would say subscription doesn't work is when the organization itself doesn't have a long-term focus. So if you're a CEO and you're trying to hit a number by the end of this calendar year, so you get your big payout, your big bonus, and then you're planning to ride off into the sunset, you're probably not going to want to invest in building long-term relationships with your customers. So when I see models like that, where leadership has a very short-term goal, you know, it's it's very unlikely that anything they do with subscription is really going to work. Just moving on to your latest book then, The Forever Transaction, where does this take us to now? For a while, I was just trying to convince people to think about subscriptions and I was trying to get them to take on a 
member mindset where you focus on what is the long-term goal I'm helping someone achieve or what is the problem I'm helping them to solve that justifies a subscription. And now in 2020, everybody understands the value of subscription. You can get a subscription to just about anything. You can get a subscription for socks, a subscription for coffee, a subscription for any kind of video, audio, print content. Everybody is doing subscription. And the challenge now is how do you succeed with your subscription model. So I wrote the forever transaction really to cover how you do it. And the first section is launch, which is how do you start your subscription business? Where do you begin? Whether you're an entrepreneur doing this on your own with a clean slate, or you're trying to come up with a subscription model alongside your existing model. The second phase is really about once you've got product market fit, meaning you know that what you're offering resonates with an audience, that your headline benefits attract their attention and trigger them to join, and that once they join, your engagement features are going to keep them for a long time, that they're going to make your products and services a habit. Once you have confidence about that, once you have product market fit, the next phase is how do you scale your business? How do you reach more people? How do you build a culture to support it in your organization? What metrics do you use to manage it? And then the last phase that I wrote about is, I call it the lead phase, which is your business is working really well. It's at scale how do you stay relevant over time? And this is really where a lot of old school subscription businesses find themselves. So when you think about professional associations or societies, gyms, fitness centers, news organizations, they've all had subscription pricing for a long time, but their big challenge is how do we stay relevant for tomorrow's members? Sure, yeah. So I can see how that would work for a sort of a mature business or a business that knows where it's going. But in terms of a startup business, how would a startup business look at setting up a membership scheme or a membership subscription service from the get-go? So let's say you're a recruiter. So the first question is, is there a long-term ongoing problem that you can solve for somebody or a long-term goal that someone's trying to achieve that you can help them with? So in the world of recruiting, it might be, well, we always are going to need people. Let's say you're specializing in helping them find uh, salespeople. You know, you say, we're always going to need these salespeople. That's an ongoing thing. We always have an open rec for that. You'd say, okay, instead of setting up my business traditionally, which is sort of by the seat that I fill, um, you know, you pay me a fee if I get the person, let's have an ongoing relationship where I'm always looking and you're paying me a fixed price, right? So you're changing the model. You're saying my goal, instead of my goal being to fill one seat or to get them one person, it's to make sure they always have the person or the staff they need when they need it. What would I need to do to reorient myself to deliver on an ongoing basis instead of on an episodic basis? And so you figure out who could you do that for? What size organization? What roles would you fill? And then you figure out what would I offer them that's different than what I offer them now? How could I more fully solve the problem for them? And you layer in additional features and benefits. And, and that's really all there is to it. You know, it's, it's first about coming up with that forever promise and who you're making it to, which is usually the bigger promise, the bigger goal that that customer has beyond why did they sign up to work with you in the first place? Because they're trying to achieve this thing. How can I help them achieve that thing more fully and in an ongoing basis? And, you know, that's really where every good subscription starts. So I think with the recruitment resourcing model, you could apply that to both sides of the equation. So obviously people 
freelancers, contractors are always looking for the next job. Clients are always looking for the next good person. So in terms of that methodology of ongoing relationships, always looking for you, you could be always looking for clients, for new people. You can always be looking for new jobs, new job opportunities for people. So you could operate that subscription on both sides of that model, I guess, really. Absolutely. And there are a lot of subscription businesses that are also marketplaces where the benefits are on both sides. And, you know, in some cases, both sides pay. In other cases, you know, one side pays and the other side gets it for free. And in those cases, you know, this kind of gets into this concept of a freemium model where, for example, you might say, if I'm a recruiter, I make it free for all the freelancers to join my organization because I'm getting paid by the corporates who have deeper pockets and broader ongoing needs, right, than any one person. So they'd be willing to pay more and they're more able to pay. Or I might say, you know, I'm actually going to offer something worth paying for on both sides. So these are some of the questions to deal with when you're when you're optimizing your model. So you touched on three things there, features, benefits and marketplaces. So just delve a little bit more into what you mean by features and benefits of subscription models and marketplaces. Sure. So let's take an example that people are familiar with. Let's say you're thinking about Uber, right? Or Lyft. Most people think of the members of those organizations as being the riders, right? The the people who actually pay for rides. But really their membership economy is built around the drivers. That's who they have the deep relationship with. And they're taking basically a percentage of that person's income, right? I'll find you jobs. I'll find you people to drive and you'll pay me an ongoing amount, to be part of that. And you have to join and you have this ongoing relationship. So that's an example. And so when Uber thinks about what they're going to offer, sure, they're always thinking about features that face the riders, you know, things that make it easier for us as riders to hail a car, um, to manage the payment process, to track where I'm going, to give feedback. But they're also building out features that make it easier for the drivers to manage their time and their money. So if you're a product manager at that company, you're balancing those two things all the time. Obviously, like most people, I'm on Spotify, I'm on, I'm on Netflix, I've got subscriptions to those services. And I know that you can pay a higher premium if you want your whole family to use the subscription as opposed to just yourself. What are some of the sort of different levels of, of membership that you've seen in organizations, such as you mentioned before, Bain, professional services. So if I was to join their subscription model, what would be the different levels I could go in? Are there kind of like gold, silver, platinum type membership levels in those models as well? So talking about tiered membership offerings, if your organization has one offering right now and you're considering layering in additional ones, the places to look are, why do you need an additional level? Is it because you have subscribers who are sort of pushing on the top of what you have? So they're asking for more than you provide, either more volume, more features or a higher level of service. Like I want to be able to call for help 24 hours a day and I want to talk to a person. So you might come up with a higher tier offering, a a platinum offering for one of those three reasons. On the other side, you might come up with a new offering that's a lighter touch and less expensive. So you say, well, you know, we're charging a hundred bucks a month. But there's this huge audience of people that can only afford about $20 a month. How do we serve them? How do we lighten up the offering so that we can offer them something valuable? The other way that organizations extend their tiers is not by silver, gold, platinum, you know, which is higher levels of service for the same person, but it might go the other way, which is different use cases. 
right? So for example, SurveyMonkey has an offering that's really optimized for students. They also have an offering that's optimized for general business people. And then they have an offering that's optimized for market researchers who need more sophisticated features. And so you're not likely to use one and then the second one and then the third one over time. They're really for different people in different use cases. So if you're if you're offering multiple tiers, you want to be really clear about why you need them. And remember that the more offerings you have, the more complicated it is to manage and the harder it is for a consumer to figure out which one is right for them. And when consumers are having trouble figuring out what's right for them, mm. they trust yeah. you less. Keep it Definitely. simple for everybody, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, okay. So in terms of the future of membership, what do you see is around the corner? There's a couple of things. One of them is that subscription and membership are increasingly global phenomenon. When I wrote The Membership Economy, most of the subscription business activity was happening, not just in the United States, but here where I live in Silicon Valley with tech companies that were starting from scratch and digital only. But now it's across multiple industries and it's also happening all over the world in a couple of ways. One of them is that the you know US-based companies are going global, uh, like we see with Amazon, for example, offering Amazon Prime all over the world and trying to build direct relationships with every consumer. But you're also seeing local markets and local geographies building subscriptions and memberships optimized for their own communities and then expanding from there. So that's kind of one big trend is that any subscription quickly becomes a global subscription and you need to understand all the ins and outs, not just of people's buying habits and preferences and what they want and don't want, but also how the billing works and how to manage that that very complicated subscription billing process. The second big thing that I see happening is a move toward physical subscriptions. So not just subscribing to, let's say, a subscription box with your energy bars or make up samples, but also subscribing to a smart refrigerator or a smart car where you don't own it, but you access it as needed. And so that's really changing how a whole segment of the marketplace is thinking about how they package their value. So that's a second really big change that I've seen. So those are probably the two biggest ones that I've seen. Wow, fascinating. Sharing electric cars, that does sound uh, like the future, doesn't it, really? So what's the future for you, Robbie? What's around the corner for you? I'm sure you'll be bringing out another book soon. So what sort of topics and areas are fascinating you at the moment? Yeah, well, actually, (laughs) in the how I spent my COVID vacation category, I actually created a podcast, which I just launched a couple of weeks ago specifically dedicated to subscriptions called Subscription Stories. And the reason I did it is, well, one thing is it's really fun and challenging and kind of, you know, always exciting to have a new project. But also, you know, when you go through the process of writing a book and you interview all these people, it's so inspiring and educational. And then you finish the book and it stops. And the podcast is a great way to continue. It gives you a great excuse to continue to learn and reach out to people. And it also, you know, provides a vehicle to share emerging learning. So that's really been my biggest project over the past few months. Yeah, doesn't it just? Yeah. So I'm certainly learning quite a lot from this podcast as well. So you can reach out to lots and lots of people. Thank you very much for your time today. Lots for our listeners to get into. I'll share a link to subscription stories with our listeners. So thank you very much. That was lovely. Thank you. Yeah, real pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much, Alan. Please subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. 
And if you've got any questions or any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please head over to grangerprojects.com and drop us a note. Hope you can join us next time here on Granger's Got Skills. For now, goodbye and thank you.